World of Work podcast with James and Jane. Hi everyone, this is Jane. And just before we get into this episode, I want to remind you of all the really great stuff on our website at www.worldofwork.io. Over there, you can check out all the online seminars and workshops we do, as well as our team development programs. You'll also find articles on topics to help you thrive at work. So that's www.worldofwork.io. Now let's get on to the episode. Hello, this is James. And this is Jane. And here we are again with another episode of the World of Work podcast. We've got a great one for you today. We're going to be speaking to Mike and Ed from Shackleton Group in the United States. And we're going to be talking about their experiences of being in and leading in the Marines, where they were both aviators, as well as their experiences setting up, leading and helping their customers as part of their organizational development consultancy, Shackleton Group. Okay, let's get into the conversation. Okay, so here we are in the main body of today's conversation, and we've got a really exciting episode. Today we're speaking to Mike and Ed, who are two ex-Marines and joining us from Shackleton Group, where they work in the States. And we're going to be speaking about the culture and the experience they've had working in the Marines and some of the lessons they've learned and how those lessons can be used and translated into sort of more civilian life. Um, So we're really looking forward to this. Um, Before we get into some of that sort of organizational chat, though, guys, would you be able to introduce yourselves and say a little bit to the audience about yourselves and your background? Sure, go ahead, Ed. Thanks, Mike. I'm I live in Colorado. Other than the fact that I've been in the Marine Corps, spent 14 years in the Marine Corps, 12, 12 years on active duty. Um, I grew up in Austria. That's probably one of the more unique things about myself. I come from a family of 12, nine boys and one girl, one year between each of us, and uh, and we all stay very, very much connected. Uh, that that's translated over into my uh, into my family that I have now. I've been married for. 30 years and I have four daughters. So it's a huge family. And to me, that's probably been the most significant and formative element of my life is my family and and all my older brothers and my sister who've been instrumental in, I look up to all those people and I still do at, at 58 years old, I still look up to them. We've got a huge family legacy of military service. I think since the Civil War, there's been close to 50 members of my family who have served in the military or are actively serving in the military right now. Several are buried at Arlington. It's the way in our family that we've chosen to, uh, you know, my parents always said, give back to the community that you come from. That's what kind of led me. My dad was a Marine. Several of my brothers were in the Navy. Lots of my cousins were in the Navy. So um, just a, a huge legacy of people. I feel like I have a family, family um, uh, reputation and character to, to try to live up to. It's uh, their hard shoes to fill, but I, I try every day and that shapes who course, I am. Yeah. And I think that shapes every day how I work and how I work and why, uh, you know, I'm attracted to work with people like Mike and the folks on our team. That's a mouthful. It's probably more than you wanted, but that's a little bit about who I am, if that's helpful. It's a really, really cool, interesting background, and, and it sort of brings to life your uh, steeped history in, in military service. Um, so, Mike, what about you? Would you like to say a little bit about yourself and your background? Yeah, I'd, I'd love to. Uh, thank you, um, James and Ed. Much different start uh, to my home life. Uh, I was the last of the breed, uh, the baby, um, by a long shot, by almost 10 years, so much so. And my, my parents were quite a bit older when... Um, when they were quote blessed with me, um, I was so far behind everybody else that my mother was praying that it was a tumor. 
because she didn't want to raise another kid. <laughs> that's the family joke. Uh, that's the family joke. So for, for all intents and purposes, I was I was raised as an only child in, in very stark contrast to the way Ed grew up. Uh, born overseas. My mother was uh, born and raised in Morocco to a French family. Um, okay. My father was uh, from Colorado. Uh, his dad was first generation immigrant to the United States. So very, very different background than Ed's from a family perspective, other than we both came from a family that was um, very strong in their faith, in their mm-hmm. uh, commitment to helping others, in um, their uh, worldly exposure to things other than what's in your immediate vicinity, right? There's more to life than, uh, than what happens in Biloxi, Mississippi. Um, mm-hmm. So that was a blessing for me, as it was for Ed, to be raised by um, a family that was not, uh, you know, stuck on or only knew what was happening in their own county, right? Um, my mom was the one that talked funny. So I, I spent a career in the Marine Corps. I was a helicopter pilot, um, did a bunch of cool stuff uh, in service and uh, with my fellow Marines, um I had an opportunity at one point towards the end of my career to get selected to be a operational test pilot on the V-22 Osprey, um, which was an amazing experience, um, sure. a bond that I've never had with other Marines like I did with those guys, and a you know really series of tragic events all at the same time. If anybody knows the history of that, we buried 23 guys in eight months testing that airplane. Wow. But, wow. Um, but it has changed the battlefield so much for the better for for the marines um with the things that that aircraft does not that's not what this is about but that's the legacy that i was so excited about leaving behind that i had my fingers in that pot and today my oldest son kyle is a captain in the marine corps and he's out in california flying that aircraft that i brought into the marines what a lovely sight that is that's fantastic oh man yeah that's the uh that's the pride uh, you know, I, I thought I was proud of those kids. I've got two boys. Mm-hmm. Uh, one's an electrical engineer out in Colorado, and the other one's a, a captain in the Marine Corps. And uh, anybody that's a parent has those moments of pride. But to have my kid out there flying the same airplane I did, that's a, that's a source of, of, of pride and, uh, of course, and anxiety. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure it's that combination, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, so here we are, you know, two knuckleheads, two former helicopter pilots, two former Marine officers that have been lashing this thing together for the last 18 years. Uh, and by the way, you introduced us as ex-Marines and James, just for your information, there's no such thing. Um, uh, one, once and always, is it? Yes, absolutely. And we're pretty strong about that. So we'll forgive you this same time. Belief, oh, same belief, by Thank the you. way, with the British Royal Marines. Absolutely. They're, yeah. Right. The same cloth. Well, yeah. Right. So well, so here we are speaking to two Marines, which is an excellent thing to do. Um, and let's move on to, to chat a little bit about what things are actually like in the Marines and what your experiences are. And I guess from the outside, sometimes there's a perception that the military is quite hierarchical or perhaps a bit brittle and, and um, maybe a bit difficult to work within. So I, I guess I'd like to just check it out there and ask you, what's it really like to be in the Marines and what's it like to lead in the Marines? James, here's the deal. You know, the, the Marines have this mystique about everything that they do, that uh, which is part mm-hmm. of what excited us about talking to you, or, or perhaps even excited you about talking to us about yeah, why we do yeah. the way that we do. 
when we talk about the things that we try, that we're going to talk about today, that we try to help organizations behave more like the Marine Corps does, we're talking about yeah. them operating in in on the battlefield, right? In the operational environment, in that dynamic environment. That is where they're the world's finest at what they do. And yep. those are the types of uh, behaviors, interactions, and leadership that we're trying to replicate in other situations. If you took that same group of Marines that 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 did so well on the battlefield and then you put them back in garrison where they are most of their time in peacetime, mm-hmm. just operating as a Marine Corps, not doing Marine Corps things, they have a lot to learn from themselves. Okay. <laughs> right. Okay. So, well, that's, that's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So when we're talking about the leadership and the, and roles and responsibilities and, and the coordination that it takes and the, the decision-making and all that, there's, it, it's almost like there's two, uh, there's two different lenses that you have to look at in garrison and in the field or in battle because they operate very differently from each other. Ed, is that fair? Yeah. Not only do I think it's fair, I think it's, it's important to recognize that there's really only two modes that Marines are ever in. You're either in the fight or you're preparing for the fight. Yeah, that's interesting. And in operation, in the battlefield, how does decision-making work? So who's making these decisions and, and how does that change during the fluidity of those operations that, that you're leading and involved in? Reaching back into that last question just a little bit, I think it's important to recognize there's these split personality thing going on in the Marine Corps, right? When you talk to Marines, they can have very individual experiences. But at the same time, we have all of us so much in common. I remember my daughter and her friend were over in Paris. Her dad was a Marine. And his daughter said, every time we were walking down the street, somebody would see him with his Marine Corps hat on and people would walk by and say, hey, Semper Fi, and they'd shake hands and just keep walking. That, to me, is the common bond we have with Marines. Um, I was at a Scottish festival up in, in the mountains in Colorado, and there were two British Royal Marines there. And I had my old flight jacket on that said I was a major in the Marine Corps, and I'm retired. You know, I mean, I'm out, not retired. I long mm-hmm. since out. And I walked by these two guys, and they turned around and uh, came up to me and started talking to me, and then saw that it said major on there and popped me a salute, which was totally unrequired. And then they just started talking like we were brothers because they were British Royal Marines and we were American Marines. And to me, it's very moving. I can't overemphasize that at all because I've never served in combat. No one's ever shot at me. Well, I'm sure there's a lot of people that want to shoot at me, but... I've never been in combat. And despite the fact that I'm sure that that carries with it a lot of baggage and different experiences that I'll never know or be able to relate to, it doesn't diminish the brotherhood or sisterhood that you have with another Marine. And that that's the culture. And it's not always because you come to the Marine Corps and they turn you into that. It's a lot about who the Marine Corps and that culture Uh, And then those people come and they help continue to shape and turn the Marine Corps into what it's in. I think that's very much at the core of this, right? People who don't know just assume that the military and the Marine Corps is this very rigid hierarchy. And what I would say, it's a very clear hierarchy. It's a very definitive hierarchy that is not rigid at all. On the contrary, it is so flexible and so fluid 
it lends itself beautifully to why the Marine Corps and General Gray in the 80s adopted this concept of war fighting because it was so well suited to this very same culture of what do we need to do? We'll go make it happen. Marines and this whole concept about power and decision making is all about how to make something happen instead of like in the civilian world, why do we need to do that? Or why are we doing that? Or why it won't work as opposed to how it how to make it happen. Very, very different attitude. And so I truly believe that power and decision making comes from that defined hierarchy, but lots of latitude. I was given more latitude uh, as an officer in the Marine Corps than any place else I've ever, wor- ever worked. When I was in the Marine Corps, I, as an officer, I was expected to make sure we met the mission. I, in turn, expected the staff NCOs to make it happen. They, in turn, expected their Marines to make it happen. There's a lot of, here's what we need to go accomplish. And then your job as an officer is to, and as a leader, not as an officer, but as a leader, is to remove those obstacles. So I've always been impressed, uh, almost, it's almost a little intimidating to see how effective and how aggressive and assertive Marines are when they're given a task. Because you got to get out of the way because they're not going to let you be in their way. And, and so that's why I was saying a minute ago, this whole idea, James, that there's really two modes that Marines are in. You're either in the fight or you're preparing for the fight. And there's really no other mode. And so that's where that, that phrase, train like you fight and you'll fight like you trained, comes from. And that drives all our decisions. And therefore, you got a whole lot of people right down to the lowest level Marine who are more than happy to execute the authority that you've given them and they're not afraid of it. So we've, we've had like maybe two questions and already I am completely surprised and excited and interested in a couple of the things you've said because they're not words that I would have associated with military service and particularly the Marines. And you've talked about fluidity and flexibility and you've talked about this idea of transitioning between states. You know, you talked about operations versus garrison. And I'm really, really interested in that. Um, I'd love to understand a little bit more. Is that... Did you have to learn how to effectively transition to be in a different state for yourself? Or is that something that you built skills in as you progressed through your career in the Marines? I think that's part of, uh, Jane, that's part of the way the Marine Corps is structured and the way that they behave culturally. You are brought into that and you uh, grow into that culture that exists and you behave the way that the organization um, expects you to behave when you're there. So they're not those that can and those that can't. It's the way the organization is set up that allows Marines to behave that way, uh, that allows Marines to, to transition from one to the other, from garrison to battle the way that they do. You, One of the words that you touched on that you mentioned was flexibility. Super critical to the effectiveness of the Marine Corps and the whole concept of maneuver warfare and war fighting that General Gray talked about that, that Ed just brought up. The reason why they are so flexible is because of the structure that they have. And that may sound um, odd, right? But from structure comes flexibility because you know where you started from. You know uh, that hierarchy exists for the very reason 
of allowing the flexibility to be present when it needs to be, if that makes any sense at all. Do you know what? It makes total sense. And also, I just, I cannot, I cannot get past how much it reminds me of a conversation we've previously had about, of all things, creativity. Now, you mentioned just a minute ago about, you know, when you um, task allocate or you set set an objective for Marines, you better get out of the way because they'll figure out a way to get it done. And I was thinking about, we had a conversation about creativity a while about a while ago about the power of creating boundaries for a creative person to force them into a place where they have to fill that boundary box or where they have to really think about how they can get the most out of a limited set of circumstances. And I wonder if that's what the hierarchy and the strength of culture does in that space. It challenges you as Marines to really explore every avenue you might have within those boundaries to get the job done. So I think that is a great point, Jane. It really does talk exactly to the role of leaders. And I don't mean executive leaders. I mean the leaders at every level. There's two things that I think, in my opinion and in my experience, that have to be done in order to allow people to be able to go out and execute the mission successfully. And that is, you got to hire adults, right? (laughs) You got to hire professional, capable people teach them what it is you want them to do or explain or get them to learn, whatever that is. And then the other thing is you got to give them the intent. If you do those two things, you set some very clear boundaries for them. And then you got to give them the latitude and resources to go do it, obviously, right? But those things will allow that to happen. It's it's not a light switch that turns on though, right? For some people and their personality and who they are and how they behave, That's a hard transition to make. But in the Marine Corps, it really is second nature. And and it is kind of a sink or swim environment. That's why our training and our filtering process up front is so strict and vigorous. (laughs) We take when when we send Marines into boot camp, you know, the first several weeks of that is about filtering out those that clearly aren't going to fit. Right. And if there's and and if you have too much of a sense of self, you're not going to fit. Same thing in the in the officer training, you know, 12 weeks of OCS, officer candidate school, which is essentially the boot camp that officers go through up in Quantico. um, We used to say there is no training at OCS. It's a filtering process. Their mission is attrition. You know, right up until the very end, they're trying to filter out because, remember, you're getting trained evaluated and put under the gun by senior enlisted Marines who are, who are tasked with, are we going to let these knuckleheads through the spigot and out into the fleet and ultimately be the people that are in charge of us? So there's a very rigorous filtering process. And that's what allows us to say, I got to have commander's intent in order for you to be successful. Let's get the right people in there And then let's tell them what we want from them. And then let's train them to be able to do that. And then let's get the hell out of their way. Yeah. So I've got got, um, one thing I wanted to pick up on there. And it's, it's kind of based on a conversation that we've had with some people in the British military speaking about that, you know, lack of um, focus on self. And and they, they speak about experience uh, in the military as very much uh, service oriented in many ways. And, and, you know, particularly looking at here in the UK veterans who've left military service and are trying to 
find uh, a way into civilian life in some of the jobs that they go into. There's a real call towards service and serving others. Do you think there's a, a real values-based piece in that, that that correlates with what you've seen, that, that desire to serve and be part of a greater body? There's, there's no doubt. There's no question about that. First, Ed touched on it. It starts with who's attracted to this lifestyle. It's very, very difficult to get into the Marine Corps now. Okay. Uh, it's difficult to get into any military service. The Marine Corps is particularly picky about who okay. they allow in. It's a certain kind of uh, young man or young woman that's attracted to that in the first place. And it comes from a different place. They, they typically don't go to the Marine Corps because they couldn't find a job anywhere else. They go to the Marine Corps because the Marines are a calling for them. So you're starting with that already. You're starting with somebody that has a service-oriented heart, uh, mm-hmm. that has some values uh, in the right places, um, or they wouldn't go that route. Uh, yeah. That's part of the advantage, right? And then the screening process that Ed talked about, and ask any Marine that's been in a fighting hole, he's not there for his country. He's not there for patriotism. He's not there for the flag. He's there for that Marine that's sitting next to him. That's what it really boils down to. At that point in his life, the most important thing to that Marine is the Marine sitting next to him. It's um, imbued into the very fabric of the organization from the moment that they step on the yellow footprints in Paris Island, when they show up at boot camp and they want to be a Marine and they spend their 13 weeks as a recruit getting pounded by those DIs, the drill instructors, uh, it starts from the very beginning with the simplest things of breaking them down into nothing, just pieces of meat that the d- drill instructors are then going to form into this thing that we call a Marine. And in the process of doing that, they learn that what they need to do to be successful is depend on that guy or gal that's on their right and the left. And they need to behave in such a way that those two Marines can depend on him or her the same way. That's what starts the whole thing. And that never goes away. Because of that, because of that mindset, you have interactions like Ed described with that Royal Marine on the sidewalk in Colorado. It's because that never leaves. They, it is so well ingrained into you that it never leaves for the rest of your life. I don't care if you spent a year in the Marine Corps or 30 years in the Marine Corps, at the end of the day, everybody wants that on their headstone. He was a Marine. And and that strength of connection that you speak about is so powerful. And like human connection is such an important aspect of our lives. It feels like the, the richness that you're describing in those relationships is probably fairly um, unique to military service compared to a lot of civilian life. Do you think that's fair? Absolutely. And just to give you an idea of how it never leaves you, even in your civilian life, my dad, who's 94 now, is a combat veteran and was in World War II. And he was a Marine in the Korean War. Two years ago, he was inducted into the Marine Corps Sports Hall of Fame for track and field. There's only 40 people in the Marine Corps Sports Hall of Fame. And my dad stood up. There was two or 300 people in there when, they, when he gave his speech. It, nothing in his speech was about himself. He stood up and said, here's three examples of the Marine Corps never leaving your, your life. And he told three stories. And he goes, here's the last one. But he said, here I am, 91, and the Marine Corps reaches out, and it's still part of your life. Yeah. You can't ever get away from it. And he expressed that in a good way. So, yeah, it absolutely uh, is part of the fabric. It becomes part of the fabric of who you are. And therefore, you don't shed those things. 
You bring them with you. And we've brought them with us uh, into our work and our workplace. It's not like because we're trying to get people to behave the way the Marine Corps behaves. It's probably more apt to say there's great lessons learned that apply here. Don't lose those. And what's important is that we've brought, that's the whole, that is the whole premise of what Shackleton Group does, what Ed and I teach our consultants to do with our clients is those pieces of what really works well in the Marine Corps, we've translated into organizational development concepts that work in any organization. Yeah. If you'll suffer me another moment here, there's there's a little example and it's just a microcosm, mm-hmm. but for me, it speaks volumes about this culture that we're talking about. I was flying one night in Japan. My job was search and rescue. And we have crew chiefs uh, that work in the back. I happen to have a crew of five. There's myself. I happen to be the aircraft commander. There was a co-pilot, a crew chief. We had a rescue swimmer and then a rescue corpsman all in the aircraft with us. And we're flying one night. Been a long training night. We'd been flying for a few hours. We'd been putting people out in the cold water in the wintertime and pulling them back up so that we could practice our SAR skills. And we were out there doing that. We're all very tired. We're coming home. And you've done this, you know, a hundred times. And so it's easy, especially when you're tired and it's late to get a little complacent, right? So we're flying along and it's a little quiet and we're all paying attention and doing our job. But, you know, you're, you're just within sight of the air base and, uh, and nighttime and the lights, and you know, you're, you're close to being able to shut down. And all of a sudden, over my intercom system in my helmets, that silence was dramatically and heart-shakingly broken by my crew chief screaming out, break hard right. And so what do you think I did? Well, of course, I broke hard right immediately. And he kept saying, keep coming right, keep, hey, roll out, come down, come down, come down a couple more hundred feet, keep coming. All right, level off, start coming back to the left, sir. Uh, all right, we're all clear. You're good. And in that moment, in that brief moment, that crew chief was a hundred percent the leader in that aircraft. No question about it. I didn't look back at him and say, now, wait a second. I'm the aircraft commander. Let's talk about this. But what happened was leadership seamlessly transitioned from whoever was formally in charge to the person who had the best situational awareness and could get us and our team to where they needed to be successfully. That to me, that little story, 100% reflects the overall culture of the Marine Corps and what the Marine Corps is trying to do. We train to that all the day. You could have seen that behavior in any other place. It had nothing to do with me exercising exceptional leadership skills. But it's because your Marines are who they are. They're aggressive. They're brave. They've got moral courage. They're not worried about your rank when it comes to doing the right thing and executing the mission. And we, in turn, have complete and utter trust for one another and our ability to execute that mission. That's a little picture, and it's like a microcosm of the bigger picture. But to me, it's very representative of the culture in the Marine Corps and the culture Mike and I want to create in, in our own company, as well as help other organizations see that maybe. So sorry to drift, but hopefully that makes sense. It's a brilliant story. No, it's a, 
It's a great story, and, and it's, um, it's evocative, but the way you describe that fast-paced transition of leadership in the moment to the people who are best placed to lead in that moment is fantastic, and you can see why that's something that you really want to, to emulate. Um, Jane, I think you had a question you wanted to come in on. Yeah, I'm, I'm really interested, and it's something I've, I've has cropped up a couple of times when we've talked to people with a, uh, with a military background. A couple of times earlier in the conversation, you've mentioned um, – You've consistently referenced giving your team what they need in terms of resources and latitude or, or used similar terms. And I guess I'm asking this on behalf of lots of our, our managers and listeners who have teams and, and maybe struggle to advocate upwards for the resources and the space and the time and the, and the freedom to do what they think is right. And I guess I'm asking you from a very personal perspective. What's your advice for people who are maybe not so confident at their ability of, set, of, of accessing the resources and the space and the time and the freedom to give their teams what they need from the kind of more senior leadership? I'll, I'll say something real quickly and then let Mike talk so I'm not monopolizing here. But I hate to sound callous, but the minute they accepted the position of leadership that they took, that mantle of leadership, with it comes the responsibility to move obstacles and get the resources and stand up for their people. Mike? Yeah. So, uh, Jane, what you said was, what I need to do is give the people what they need and get out of their way. Um, my mind didn't automatically go to resources. That's, that's not the first thing I think that they need. The first thing I think that they need is to understand intent to understand the, the mission, uh, to understand their role in it and the responsibilities associated with that role. And most importantly, to understand the relationships between the roles in the organization that are all working towards that common goal. None of that has really anything to do with resources. It has everything to do with leadership that anybody can take on at any level in the organization or any size of an organization. If I want my team to work right, I need to get them to understand how I expect them to work. What's the target that we're going after? Who's going to take which side of it? Who's going to run up the middle? And how are we going to get there? I give them all of those intent type things and then let them figure out how to make it happen. When I think give my people what they need and then get out of their way, that's what I'm thinking is I need to give them very clear guidance and intent and be surprised by the approach that they take to satisfy the taskers that I've given them, right? That makes total sense. Uh, I'm really interested, just following on from that, um, that, that clarity you talk about that a leader needs to give their team, do yes. you think that's something that can be developed and learned? And, and if so, do you have any, how do you go about when you go into an organization and you see an organization that maybe that's something they're really struggling with, that their leaders are not providing that, that clarity, that vision of, or, or mission, if you sure. will, of what yeah. is behind to do? What, what, what can they do about that? Well, you, you got to start there. So our model, our organizational development model speaks to that directly. It, and there's five components to it. It starts with strategy and the things that are associated with strategy. I'm not going to turn you guys into OD model experts today, but strategy uh, defines you know, where the organization is trying to go, what it's trying to do. The structure supports that strategy. So you, you, don't, you don't build the structure first. You don't build the team first. You have the ideas first. 
and you build the direction that we're going. Then you build the structure to support that. Then you fill it with the people that are required with the knowledge, skills, and abilities to execute that structure. Then you provide leadership for all of that, and you will end up with some kind of result. That's our organizational development model. So that's also the approach that we take to assess an organization. We start with strategy. Is there a clear, uh, understood, and well-articulated and published corporate philosophy, right? A, a, uh, a list, perhaps, of patterns of behavior that are accepted um, in the execution of your daily duties, and more importantly, those things that won't be tolerated, right? Whether that's commander's intent or philosophy or guiding principles, whatever you want to call it, does it exist? Um, is there a vision for where the organization wants to be, you know, five years and 10 years? Are there strategic objectives that support that? Is there a clearly stated and understood and articulated mission statement with supporting operational objectives? Those things or by some other name, those components make up the foundational doctrine of any organization. If those don't exist, that's where you start. You got to build that first. If they do exist, then you need to figure out how well understood they are, how they are articulated. How is leadership passing that word and holding people accountable to it? When you find those disconnects, that's where your answer is that you talked about, right? If you if, if they don't understand the culture, if they don't understand the direction that the organization is going or that executive leadership is going, you need to figure out why. Either leadership hasn't figured it out themselves or they make the most common mistake of executive leaders is they assume that people just understand what the expectations are. And, and people don't. You have to tell them. You have to articulate it. You have to make sure they understand it. And, and you have to tell them a few times, right? And you know what, Jane? I, I think that, that is separate and distinct from can they learn to be a leader or do they learn clarity? So you mentioned clarity and leadership. What Mike talked about in my mind is your leaders have to provide that clarity. But were, were you also saying can leadership be learned? Because that's a... That's a year-long seminar we could have a discussion. <laughs> I guess, I guess, very specifically, I was asking, um, and and before I before I answer you, just to say that is a brilliant, very simple and straightforward uh, example for our listeners of how to go about diagnosing what's going on in their organisation. So, thank you for that. Before you go on, let me just add that that since you like it, um, we've actually got a free app called the Organisational Assessment Development Tool that will tell you about. Is how to get to it at the end of this, but it's free for anybody. And it actually guides you through the very thing that I just described. Oh, brilliant. Well, we'll share that with the listeners. So listeners look out for that on our Twitter and LinkedIn feeds. Um, when I was asking about learning, I was very specifically, I think um, I've worked in the past with some organizations where the leaders have had good, some good fundamentals, but they have somewhat struggled uh, with the ability to provide clarity and it, it plays very much to what you just said which is they thought they were giving clarity or they thought it was heard but they hadn't necessarily done it in a way that communicated it well to the people that are listening so I guess I was just asking do you think that kind of strength of leadership communication specifically can be learned and developed over time? I think it absolutely can be uh, because I was terrible at it I don't know that I'm great at it now but I can do it a lot of that has to do with learning to listen, learning to understand, 
uh, learning, learning. I'm using the word learning. Uh, you know, and Mike and I, on multiple occasions, have had a lot of healthy, good solution-focused arguments on whether people are natural leaders or whether leadership can be learned. And they're not these mutually exclusive things. I know for a fact there are natural born leaders, but I know people, case in point, exhibit A, Ed, not a natural leader, but I learned how to do it. I had to. And people get thrown into leadership positions, whether they're thrown into them, drawn into them, uh, whether they're attracted to them, but that doesn't necessarily make them natural leaders, but it also doesn't mean they can't learn or grow into that. My experience, as limited as that might be, tells me that I've seen a lot of really fundamentally basic, average people, and I've watched them grow over their lifetime and career into very good and effective leaders, but they weren't natural leaders. Now, I don't fall into that category. I think I'm effective, but it's not natural for me. It's very natural for Mike. It comes much more naturally to him. I have to work at it but I recognize it's important, so I do. That, I don't know if that helps yeah. with what you were that, pointing at or if I just completely left the I know, that is exactly, uh, I guess, what I was trying to get your thoughts on because I think um, it's something that we we believe is, is erroneous. Like, we think people can learn the basic skills, um, but you're right, I think there are also natural leaders, but often that will put off people who are in really great positions to lead because they don't feel it's it's naturally their fit. I know we're, um, I'm going to, I know any second now I'm going to get my knuckles wrapped from James because uh, I know we're running out of time, but before we do, I want to speak is. <laughs> I know, I can feel it coming. Um, he keeps me on my toes. But I just want to ask one last question, which I, I know actually James was really interested in as well. And it's about the role of trust. Um, James and I talk lots and lots with uh, clients and with the people that we work with around uh, building trust and the dangers of damaging trust. And I, I specifically wanted to know, like, what are your thoughts on how important trust is in it, for you sort of personally and in your experience of Marines? Is it is it the same as, uh, is it as important as someone's ability to perform? Is it maybe even more important for you? How do you, how do you see the importance of trust in the relationships and the experiences you've had? So, so uh, two, two pieces, uh, Jane, the first one I'm going to answer very quickly and very short. And the second one uh, is more near and dear to my heart. So uh, trust is a component within the organization that within any organization that leadership is responsible for developing. Um, in my opinion, right? It doesn't happen automatically. It never reaches a point of self-sustainment. It's always in balance. And you've always got to keep an eye on um, what's the level of trust within the organization. And a lot of it comes from the things we were talking about before, the clarity of purpose, the clarity between roles and responsibilities and relationships, the understanding of what each other does and how they fit into that organization and who's supposed to be doing what, those kinds of things build trust. That plus a lot of other stuff. End of statement. That's one piece of it that I wanted to get out, but it's not the most important part. There was a movie years ago. Um, anyway, it was Rob Roy about, uh, okay, Rob Roy McGregor, the Jacobite in the uh, 16th century, whatever it was. And there's one scene in the movie where he's telling his young lads, his boys, they're asking him about honor. And he says, um, uh, honor is neither given to you nor taken away by any man. Honor is the gift a man gives himself. To me, 
that's uh, that equates to integrity. That equates equates to that individual personal component of trust, Jane. That I think you're asking about. What's more important, performance or trust? Can I trust a good performer 100% of the time or a great performer only 75% of the time? I'll tell you right now, I don't care how they perform. If I can trust them, if their integrity is unquestioned, if they act with honor, I can teach them how to perform. I can get them to perform and I don't have to worry about them. That to me, hands down, I'll bet on every time. You can give me the superstar that I can only trust 75% of the time. I will release him from duty. I don't need him around. I don't need anybody that I can't unequivocally 100% of the time have trust in their uh, intent, in their passion, in their desire to be a part of something bigger themselves and the honor with which they conduct themselves. That's 10 times more important than performance to me. Couldn't agree more with you, Mike. I mean, and this isn't just talking about the Marine Corps. Obviously, this is this transcends anything, any organization. If you're a small organization, Mike's in my organization, our organization. There's a great book out there, by the way, called It's Your Ship uh, by Mike Abershoff. If you ever get a chance to read it, fabulous. Uh, and um, and there's another book, and I'm having a brain cramp right now, by Dave Marquet. Both of those, turn the ship around. one was a ship captain. Turn, turn your ship around. Dave is a great guy. Mike's a great guy. Uh, I've, I've had the opportunity to work with uh, with uh, Mike Abershoff on a couple of occasions uh, in, in very brief settings and discussions. And I've had the opportunity to get to know Dave Marquet because he and my uncle were friends and I was in the Marine Corps and he was a Navy commander at the time. So great guys who've got great insights. Um, when you talk to either one of them, not huge egos at all, right? Right. But very successful leaders because they instilled trust as leaders in their people, in the organization, by setting the example, by leading effectively. But when you look at their teams, did they have the best, the, the number one best sailors in the Navy? Or did I have the best Marines in the Marine Corps in, in my teams? Well, I sure felt like I did, mm-hmm. but that's only because of the way they behaved. When what's the what's if you're familiar with American football, the single worst football game to watch of the year is the All Star game. <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah, I'm with you because it's this, it's this. The field is full of superstars who have never effectively worked together. That's, that's a, a great team. analogy, right? That's a great example to bring right? back to life. Yeah. So, so you look at it and you go, "This is abysmal." I would argue that the Saints, who are a football team, an NFL football team, are an absolutely fabulous football team. But I don't think that the Saints are full of superstars. And I don't think Drew Brees is a superstar. But I tell you what, he is a superstar at. It's leadership. And when he gets pulled out of the equation, when he got hurt a few weeks ago, Mm -hmm. everybody went, oh, my God, what's going to happen to the team? Nothing. They function fantastic. Because that's the environment that as a captain and a leader, he's helped create. Right. There's no long pole in the tent. Yeah. We're all equally important. So from my perspective, I would, given the opportunity, I would have much rather have 10 average people that I know will be successful because they know how to work as a team cohesively 
than 10 superstars who are all about themselves. Yeah. Not looking for superstars. I'm looking for a team. So there's some great stuff there about trust. I, I think those are some really excellent stories and it really brings it to life. You talked about a few things there that I wanted to explore a little bit further. One of the things you, you talked about um, made me think of maybe uh, an important aspect of leadership is if you lead well, potentially your unit or your team will thrive without you. Do you think that's a, a sort of a measure of a good leader, an ability to create something that lives beyond you? I'll let Mike talk, but in short, I will say that's not the measure, but I certainly think it's an important measure. Yeah, the, uh, gosh, I don't remember, I think it's on the front of one of our uh, one of our participant guides, something about you're not measured by, you know, the decisions you make, but the leaders that you leave behind, um, something to that effect. The idea being that uh, our job as leaders is to make um, ourselves um, unnecessary, right? No, no man mm-hmm. is an island. Um, you, you should be able to move in and out of that organization, disappear for a week or two and come back and, and have them not miss a beat. In fact, other than the meetings that you didn't attend, they wouldn't even know that you were gone. Um, the great example that Ed suggested yeah. with the New Orleans Saints and when their, their, their quarterback gets injured and they continue to win games. Um, and they've, they've proven to do that several times, and it's because of that culture of leadership that they have. Uh, there's no one king, right? You, there's no head to cut off of the snake because it's like Medusa. You built an organization that, with that culture of leadership where everybody feels so much connection and calling to be a part of that organization more than to be about themselves that uh, taking the, the, the uh, positional leadership thing away, the guy that has the you know, the eagles on his collars makes no difference. Everybody, because of what that leader did to be clear about the intent and clear about the roles, they know exactly where to pick up when they get left off. Yeah, yeah, that's good. And I've got one more question that that was sort of brought to mind by some of the conversation and, and the stories you were telling there, Ed. And it made me think of something else. I know that certainly here in the UK, we got to a stage where some of the big legal for uh, legal firms were looking to avoid hiring people who'd, for example, never failed an exam, right? So they started to, to look for different yeah. traits within people. And I was just wondering if you had any reflections on the importance of sort of failure or overcoming obstacles in, in shaping the sort of values and behaviors of people in an organization. And if there's a role for leaders in, in using failure or bringing failure into their sort of approach yeah, to leadership well, in any way. Well, well no, for better or worse... It's played a huge role in shaping my life. I don't go a week without stumbling, tripping, and and failing at something. In fact, one of our business partners in, in this company, Ken Fancher, told me years ago, as a, I was a young first lieutenant and he was my boss, and I was frustrated about something one of my Marines had done, and I was talking to him, and he said, hey, listen, knucklehead, if your Marines aren't tripping over their shoelaces at least once a day, they're not trying hard enough. And I've carried that with me the rest of my days because, yeah, we all get frustrated with the failures of those that we work with or work for us. Some are acceptable. Some are not acceptable. Right. If we're failing because we're lazy or we're not doing our due diligence or not paying attention to detail, particularly in an environment where failure is is measured in people's lives or safety. Uh, then that's mm-hmm. unacceptable, right? You 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 do have to have a zero tolerance for some of that stuff. 
But failure in growing as a leader and developing our people as a leader and getting better at what we do. I failed many times as a parent, as a husband, as a friend. But I, I like to think, and I'm not trying to make this about me, but I think it applies to others as well, mm-hmm. is I think those things have made me be a better parent so that I hopefully don't trip over that same stumbling block next time or that I have the, the grace uh, and, and I can check my ego at the door and go back and apologize to my wife or my kids or the people I'm working with and say, um, no, but, but those, but failures are hugely important. I think failures are the opportunity. That is the window of opportunity that we can exploit to get better. Failure is a, is a great lesson and a great tool and a wonderful experience. I wouldn't trade trade most of my failures in life for, for not having had them. Some of them I would, but not all of them. Most of them not. Yeah. So this really feeds into that conversation about we're either in the fight or getting ready to fight. When we're getting ready to fight, when we're in garrison, it has almost become zero tolerance for any kind of mistake. And that's sad because I, I'm 100%, I agree with Ed that, that from mistakes comes growth, right? And comes learning. There are some things that are intolerable, right? Don't, don't do illegal drugs. You, you can't do that. That's, a, that's just a rule that they have. And if you get busted, you're out. But there are other things. If somebody fails in leadership because they made a poor decision that, you know, cost us to take a longer trip to go around or, or uh, you know, one of your troops got in trouble for something and they, they fire the battalion commander because he should have known that that troop was doing X, Y, or Z. It's just, it's tough. It's really tough in the military nowadays to operate in such a way that you tolerate um, failures um, like you should be able to. Failures within reason, right? Acceptable failures. So what I'm getting to is for the organizations that are out there, for the folks that are up and coming leaders, for the folks that are in a position where you've got young and up and coming leaders working for you, the word of advice is be tolerant of failure because that, in in fact, you should demand failure because like Ed said, if they're not tripping over their shoelaces, if you're not expecting them to fail, if you're not supporting them when they do, they're not going to last very long. And having said that makes me think, Mike, though, we have to be as leaders, everybody on this phone, on this call right now, on this podcast, as a leader, we have the responsibility to say, how much rope am I going to give somebody, right? Yeah. So that they can fail and learn. But if we give them enough rope to to, to jump off the, the cliff, and then we don't have anybody tethered, and they're just going to crash into the bottom of the ravine, that's our failure that's as leaders. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. So, so one of the great things we, you know, years ago we did a, a little impromptu interview. It was part of one of the uh, classes that we were building on leadership. And what we did was reach out to this leadership network that we're associated with Olympic coaches and, and generals and program managers and captains of industry. And we asked them a question, James, we said, in your years, what have you narrowed your leadership diet down to? Right. What is that mm-hmm. one What is that one thing or those two things that are the nuggets that you would share with a new leader up and coming? You know, you've been doing this for a long time. 
100% of them said the same thing when we asked them that question. The humility was astounding. 100% of them said, I don't know why you're interested in what I think, right? Imminently successful people. But so they started answering that question for us and it, it went, it ran the gamut. We ended up with nine categories of answers. But one of the things came to mind when you, when we started talking about this, one of the people that we asked the question said, when you delegate a task, when you delegate your authority to somebody that works for you, expect them not to do it the way you would have done it. Expect that and and reward it when it comes back. It may be a mistake. They may fail. It doesn't mean that they did it wrong just because they did it differently than you did. And if when you delegate that authority, you have that in mind that they're going to do it different than the way that you are, that's when you grow a team. That's when you expand and when you start reaching those horizons that are outside of the box, when you've really got a team and not just a bunch of people working for one guy. And, you know, as you were speaking, another sort of connection popped into my mind a little bit, which was, you know, you're talking about giving people um, the rope to try things and expecting people to do things differently to you. And and as you've been speaking, I've kind of been thinking that if part of our purpose is to create a space where Absolutely. our teams can live without us, right, where we're redundant, then people have to have the courage and the ability to do things in a different way, because otherwise they'll never, you know, prosper without us. So I think that's all connected really nicely. Um, I wanted to go on and, and start to explore a few of our sort of transitioning towards the end questions. And one of the things I wanted to ask about was um, when we think about what organizations are doing when they're thinking about leadership in, in the wider world, they tend to talk about sort of leadership. And you guys talk about this culture of leadership. And, and that's a phrase you use. Can I just ask what that culture of leadership piece means to you? I think it embodies a lot of what we've spoken about, but I just wanted to check it out. Mike, you want to take that? Sorry, yeah, yeah I, was, <laughs> I was racing for the mute button. If I could draw a picture for you, a little vignette of a large building, you know, with the company name on the outside of it with a thousand employees, you know, making lots of money, building widgets in a parking lot with the 700 cars in it on a cold morning. And there's a, there's a young lad that just started working there. He's been there maybe a year Mm -hmm. and he's walking up the sidewalk to walk into the building. And as he's walking up, he sees a cigarette butt on the ground uh, on the sidewalk at the entrance to that building. And he stops to pick it up carry it inside and throw it in the garbage. That's yeah. bred, that's born of that culture of leadership. It's it's ownership in, in that organization, right? That guy felt uh, like that was an affront to his company. That's where you got to get people. That describes the, um, the end state. That's where you want to get, where in that organization, everybody feels like they have a leadership role to play at their level, regardless of what that level is. Maybe a manager, maybe, you know, certainly a CEO does, but maybe it's uh, the person that watches the budget down in some corner office. Maybe it's the janitor, uh, you know, that's, that's sweeping the floors at night. They feel a piece of ownership of that organization because you've developed that kind of culture within them. That kind of ownership comes from understanding the things that we talked about before, the clarity of intent, the roles, the relationships between them, the how all those pieces fit together and how you connect the dots 
to what the organization is doing. We talk about connecting the dots a lot when we're working with folks. Understanding how the contribution that you make is connected to the overall success or failure of the organization is the key to developing that culture of leadership. The best and shortest example of that that we like to talk about is during the 60s when the uh, news media was rushing in the doors of the NASA building before uh, one of the moonshots and they find a guy with a mop and a bucket in a corner, you know, cleaning Mm -hmm. a spot on the floor and uh, clearly a janitor in the building. And one of the news people runs over there and sticks a microphone in front of his face and says, isn't this exciting? What do you do here at NASA? And he says, while he's pushing the mop, I'm helping us put a man on the moon. Right. That's that understanding. That's that connection that you've got to develop. And that is a leadership piece, right? Thanks, Mike. When you were talking a minute ago, James, and you were saying, you know, how do you get to that culture of leadership? Well, we've talked about a whole bunch of stuff, right? Foundational cultural stuff. And I think that one of the things that we do with our folks, and we try to promote this with our clients as well. So the folks that are out there that have people working for them that have to to, to think about this is you, you have to set and manage the expectations of your people effectively. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of the the small book called Message to Garcia. Have you ever read that, James or Jane? I've not. I've not read it. I don't know about no, you, Jane. I've not heard it. Reading the entire book takes less than 10 minutes. Wow. Okay. And I will guarantee you it will be one of the most powerful things you've ever read. But the thrust of it is get the message to Garcia. You hire, you know, it's at the time, hire the man, right? Because it was written at the turn of the last century. I give this man the letter to get to General Garcia. All I need him to do is get the message to Garcia. I don't need the man that's going to ask me a lot of questions about what should I tell him when I get there and what if I run into this and what about this and what about that. Just get the message to Garcia. And that's the struggle of the leader is to find the people, the men and women today, who can simply get the message to Garcia, given the resources, given the capability, and you give them the latitude to fail, and you set the bar, and you give them the intent, then my expectation as a leader is, if I do all those things, and then behave in kind, and expect them to get that message to Garcia, and then, critical here, hold them to account when they do not. Because when you don't, as a leader, you're doing it at the expense of the bigger thing, the organization and the other people. Yeah, and it's an, it's an injustice on them as well, right? I mean, to some extent. Absolutely, right? When I got hired by the tugboat company that I worked for in the 1980s on the docks in New Orleans, they didn't build that company so that I could have a job. They built a company <laughs> for other reasons as well. Yeah, so that they could make a profit and that they could provide a good service to their community and in kind make money and make a profit. That's not a dirty yeah. word or a bad concept. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's perfectly acceptable. So as part of that, I have to recognize as a leader that people have a personality and they do things a certain way, whether they believe in DISC or Myers-Briggs or any of the other hundred profiling things that are out there, immaterial. We, the fact remains, all of us have certain types. We all have a propensity to behave a certain way. We have a kind of a profile. And 
everybody has a personal life. When my dog dies, it's going to be a hard day at work for me that day. You know, and when people say, leave that at the door, don't bring it into work with them. Well, I get it. But the bottom line is if you as a leader don't think people are going to be distracted by enormously personal events in their life, you're probably not a very in-tune leader. But you also have to recognize the third dimension there, right? So people have a personality. They they, they have a, a typical kind of profile. They have a personal life, and it's going to affect them. And those people are a resource. And you as a leader have to find the right equilibrium between all those things all the time. And sometimes you need to make sure they understand they're there as a resource so that the company can meet its ends. I think one of the great traps we've fallen into in the past 20 plus years, uh, at least in this country, in my experience, out on the corporate side is it's all about the individual and it's become less about the greater good or the greater goal or the organization, right? And we as leaders have a responsibility, if you want to create that culture of leadership, is to get people to understand, I got to juggle who, whether I need you to be more of a resource right now, because Tommy's having a bad day because his dog died. And so I need you to ramp it up for the good of the organization. But at the end of the day, we exist for some bigger purpose. And it isn't always about us. But over the past 20 or 30 years, we've made it acceptable for people to make everything about them first. And we have to overcome that if we want to create a culture of leadership. I'm not saying everybody's that way, but it's it's become ingrained in our society that it's all about you first. It's what you're owed and what you deserve. And that's a very challenging thing to overcome. So I think one of the ways you do that is to create a culture of leadership. And one of the tangible things you can do to create a culture of leadership is make sure you recognize who people are and that they have a personal life, but you're balancing that against the fact that you're here to serve the company need as well. And as a good leader, I'll balance that, but don't expect that this is all going to be about you. <laughs> yeah, I, I really like that. Those those three circles that you draw out about, you know, the sort of personality or whatever we call it, the individual life or context, and then them being a resource. And I think some of that speaks back to the sort of service orientation of being in a job. I mean, that's what a, often a job is. It's to provide a service. And if you lose track of that, you lose track of a, a core part of what your role is. And that can be hugely rewarding to have that service element of what you do. And creating that space is really helpful for people to... Fulfill that. Yeah, and that, and I totally get James that that can't be totally dumped on the leadership or executive yeah. leadership of the company, right? Because we that that's taught and yeah, learned over a lifetime, right? Aspect, when, isn't it? I mean, it's broader than broader than work, right? We have to teach. We have to teach our kids to be part of some yeah. big, you know, to understand to be, that they are part of something bigger than themselves. That's why I want my kids to play yeah. sports or be in the drama club or be in the chess club because they learn to be part of something bigger than themselves. And when we fail as that as parents, then it becomes very difficult for that individual the rest of their life. And the last thing I would say that lends itself to a culture of leadership is accountability. Right. Um, we're really, really big in about wanting to reward people, even though some people don't do it well and some organizations don't do that well. It's, I think it's loud and clear and thumped into everybody. 
reward, 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 right? But they forget the piece of accountability that says one of the greatest rewards that I can give to the people that are working for me is when Mary is busting her rear end all the time and having to work extra hours on Friday night because Tommy's not holding up his end of the bargain is holding Tommy to account. Mary might say to me, it's really nice that you gave me this certificate and, uh, you know, a hundred dollar gift card for Home Depot. But you know what would really make my life better is if you get rid of Tommy (laughs) or hold him accountable for what he's doing. And we're not as good at that. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And that, that sort of equity and fairness in the way that we treat people and holding people to account is really, really important. I've got, um, I've got one last question before we wrap up. And, and this is sort of looking a little bit at um, your experiences of working with people. So we, we've spoken about your experiences uh, in the Marines. We've spoken a huge amount around the culture and some of the ethos that exist in your experience of leadership um, and some of the more practical elements and examples of that kind of stuff. Um, and we've touched a little bit about some of the things that you can do and, and the processes that you use in your organizational development model. And we're going to share some of those. But what I wanted to ask just before we wrap up is when you take this knowledge and this insight um, and bring it out to clients and work with them and help them go through and uh, review their foundational doctrine and, and think about changing their cultures and things, what sort of impacts do you see at the end of those interactions? How do, how do those organizations change? I'm going to do a quick stab and I'm sure Mike's going to have some thoughts as well. Sounds good. Um, But I would tell you that we've seen a range of results, right? It's a very painful process for people to go through. Sure. It's hard. You know, anytime I remember asking somebody once about doing DISC, you know, I don't care whether you agree with the outcome of the thing at all, Mm -hmm. to be honest with you. It's just to illustrate a point. And I had somebody who I have tremendous respect for tell me, who's an excellent leader, said, I don't hold much stock in those things, so I I don't even look at them. And then we got an interesting response with one of our clients one day that was similar. I didn't take it. Wow. Okay. You know, I started to look at it and I didn't take it. And I said, okay, that, that's okay. They said, so you probably think it's a cheap shot and I'm a coward for not doing it. I said, no, not at all. I said, when you started to think about taking that disc, what did you think about? Why did you not want to take it? And they said, because I knew it was going to start saying this. I wasn't sure I was going to agree with it. I don't know. I said, So what did you do? They said, I sat down and had a cup of coffee. And interestingly enough, I spent the next 30 minutes kind of thinking about what are those leadership things they're going to come up with and how do I do them and what do I think about those things? And I said, so the disc was successful then. They go, no, I didn't take it. I said, hey, it caused you to reflect on who you were and how you lead. And that's, that's successful. That's success for me. So to me, some of the things that we do are painful for our clients to go through. And they're painful for us to go through, (laughs) frankly, as well, right? But we eat our own dog food. We just went through, spent a year and a half going through all of those painful elements in our own company. And it was hard, but we did it. At the end of the day, some organizations do it very well, and some organizations are successful at those transitions. Now, it's, it's not by measure of what we say was successful. It's by measure of what they were trying to get out of it. In other places, it's very different. So some people, if they take a half-hearted attempt at it, um, it, it doesn't work, right? We came up with a kind of a rule of thumb years ago with who we were going to pursue. One, they 
have to have a need. Right. Okay. For whatever it is we're doing. Two, they have to have a want. <laughs> they have to have the desire. Yep. And three, they have to have the money. Yeah. If they don't have all three, we're not going to pursue it. Right. Because if they have the need, but they don't have the desire, then what's the point? Then you're dragging people down a path, even though they're going to pay you. And it's not going to be a it's not going to be successful for them. And guess what? It affects our credibility as well. But if they have the want and they have the money, but they don't have the need, then you're also, in my opinion, crossing uh, an ethical boundary about sure. at least making them aware of, hey, you guys are really good. What I'd like to find out is what you're doing that makes you so effective so we can continue to help others with that as well. But, yeah, and that's a different conversation, isn't it? Oh, very much so. So those three things have to exist. There has to be a need and a desire and they have to have money because if they don't have the money at the end of the day, we're going to go out of business, right? We can't do everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You need to have that financial support, don't you? So, so those types of things have led us to the clients that we have. Uh, and at the end of the day, there has to be some kind of collaboration between the executive leadership of the organization and those within the organization. There has to be an appropriate level of uh, involvement by the folks at all levels of the organization or at the various levels of the organization so that they're bought in and committed. It can't just be a push. There's got to be a collaboration between executive leadership and lower levels of leadership. Appropriate, right? Um, yeah. I, I, you know, I, I want the maintenance person to, I, I want to be able to field good ideas, but I can't invite the, the guy running the maintenance division and the janitorial services, which are a critical element of the organization. I can't invite them into how to design the best O-rings on the rocket ship that I'm building, right? But you got to figure out a way not to discount great ideas either, right? Um, yeah. You don't want to exclude the people that are out there that are very capable. Anyway, I kind of got all over the map there, but some of our organizations are successful at this, some struggle, but the bottom line is if you go in and help them assess and you help them through the process, they begin to reflect on how they can improve and nothing bad can come from that. Yeah, and half of a battle is that awareness, that mindfulness, that sort of stepping up and realizing that there is a something beyond the tasks that we do all the time and to, to invest time and attention in how we work and what we do. And that can unleash a lot of benefit. Yeah, great point. Great point. And Mike, did you have anything you wanted to add? Yeah, back to the specifics of the question, the impact that we see at the end of these interactions yeah. with clients, it, it does run the gamut from... Um, you know, not getting called back to work with them again, all the way to having some very senior folks saying, I've been doing this for 40 years and I wish I would have had you guys 39 years ago. That's a great compliment, uh, isn't it? And everything in between, right? When you hear that from somebody that's a very senior leader that you just get done working with them on a project and, and they look at the product of that work and they say that it, had they had that in their hands 20 years ago, their life would have been easier. Um, it's that's fun. pretty satisfying. I can imagine that, that happens. Right. Yeah, that happens occasionally. Now, you know, we've talked a lot about bringing what we learned in the Marine Corps into what we do in organizational development that actually very rarely comes up, right? We have translated it in such a way that it makes sense to a civilian 
you know, I, I say pure civilian, somebody that's never been in the military, somebody that's never been in the Marine Corps, mm-hmm. the approach that we take, the things that we explain, the, uh, the efforts that we go through with them just appear to be, well, golly, that's just, that's a very common sense way to do this. Yes, nice. it makes sense. That's very simple. Let's try it and see what happens. It's all born out of our experiences from the dynamics of being, you know, in that operational side of the Marine Corps, but nobody knows that unless they really know our background or they ask us about it. We tell them that it's, it's really just a simple, very practical common sense approach to uh, organizational development and to leadership um, that we've wrapped in a bow and we call it corporate maneuver warfare, kind of tongue in cheek. It's a practical guide to corporate maneuver warfare, right? All the best things about that we learned about the Marine Corps translated into such a way that it works, you know, in, in a civilian organization. Now, in those organizations where we had experiences like, gosh, I wish I would have had this 39 years ago, mm-hmm. or boy, where were you guys 20 years ago when I first started this? Those types of sentiments came from an organization in which we started with executive leadership and executive leadership absolutely believed in what we were doing right. and were willing to allow the answers to come from their own workforce, which is what our process does, right? We don't come in with 12 steps and tack them on the wall and say, here, do this and you'll feel better. We come in with questions and a facilitated approach and a prescriptive guide and process to figuring out where your pain is and pointing that out to you so that you can figure out how to fix it. Right. We help guide you through that. Unless you've got leadership at the executive level, that's going to enable that kind of behavior. There's no point in us working with the organization at all. Yeah. And every time that we've had true success where somebody said, yes, the things that you did really changed our organization and really made us better at what we did came out of organizations where executive leadership believed in this type of work in this type of organizational development, in the, you know, the, the impact that developing a culture of leadership can have in an organization. If you've got folks at the top that poo-poo it or, or don't believe that these approaches or these ideas will work, you're, you're pushing rope. It's never going to happen. I don't care how hard you try. Yeah. Yeah. And an interesting impact, right? There are these intangible things that you don't realize, mm-hmm. but a senior leader in a program brought us back into their team after we had been gone for a few years, called us up and brought us back and said, literally use the word impact. They brought us back in and uh, I said, it's good to be back. And her comment to us at the time was, well, it became very apparent that when you guys are around, we tend to focus more on this stuff. We see you walking down the hall as part of the team working with us and we go, ooh, I got to remember that stuff. It's a constant reminder that this is important. And they said, that's worth the price of admission. That's fantastic. Okay, guys. Well, I'm going to wrap things up and leave it there. Um, Just before we finish up, though, is there anything that people could do to learn more about you and the things that you work on or get in touch or anything like that? Yeah, we've got almost everything that we do available on our website. Uh, Certainly the list of products and services point to the things that we do. But in there, if you poke around enough, you can find uh, our approach, right, that we've talked about with the, the, the um, OD model. More importantly, the app. Um, in fact, if you, just, if you just go on the Apple Store and search for organizational development in apps, mm-hmm. uh, Shacklin Groups 
OD app will pop up and it's free. Um, poke around in there and it kind of walks you through how to assess an organization, either your own or somebody else. You can do it surreptitiously or you can do it using that tool as an interview process. Um, it'll help guide you uh, through some of the stuff that we talked about today. And of course, uh, you can always just, if you go to our website at www.shkgrp.com, it's got ways on there to contact us. If, if folks have specific questions about OD or uh, just want to chat about a challenge that they're having that they you know might want to bounce some ideas off of us, we're, we love those kind of conversations. So feel free to reach out email or phone or whatever works for you. That's fabulous. And, and we'll share those details and we'll share the app as well. I think that's a great idea. Um, well, I think it's just time to say thank you. That was a really enjoyable um, and broad conversation about some really important topics. And it's really excellent to hear your experience and, and that sort of bringing to life your experience and, and the way you're sharing it. So um, it's just a big thank you from me. And a thank you from me. And from us as well. There's an hour and 45 minutes of your lives you won't be able to get back. That's how people feel about talking to us. It's a pleasure. <laughs> it was a pleasure talking to you guys, and I hope this isn't the last time we talk. I Likewise. hope we're able to chat again in the future. Perfect. Thank you, everyone. Hi, everyone. This is James. Uh, thank you very much for listening to that podcast, and please do share it and review it if you enjoyed it. And don't forget, you can learn more about our coaching, workshops, courses, and development programs on our website. That's www.worldofwork.io. Again, www.worldofwork.io.